Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about High Flying Bird and I'm happy to be joined by my friend Elijah Howard. Elijah, how's it going? Great, man. I'm ready to talk some hoops. Yeah, yeah. So High Flying Bird is the newest movie from Steven Soderbergh, who has made a ton of movies in the past, but this is his first foray into sports. But it's a little different than your uh, average sports movie because you aren't seeing a lot of actual sports on the screen. High Flying Bird is uh, scripted by Terrell Avin McCraney, who you might know from Moonlight. He wrote the play that Moonlight was adapted from. And High Flying Bird itself, though, tells the story of a basketball agent played by Andre Holland, who is also in Moonlight. His agent's name is Ray Burke, and a basketball lockout has been going on for about six months. He has a client who was a first-round pick by the name of Eric Scott, played by Melvin Gregg, who you might know as the star basketball player from Season 2 of American Vandal. And Eric Scott, Ray's client, is uh, has not gotten his first payday because he got drafted when there was a lockout about to take place. So he never really got his first paycheck from that first contract, and he took some money from a loan shark, and that didn't go so well. And Ray is starting to feel that his uh, pockets tighten a little bit as well because his agency is primarily focused on basketball. So he's having his expense account canceled, and he decides to take action. Uh, and the movie kind of goes from there to for him to find a, a temporary – what we think might be a temporary fix or maybe he has something else going on and he's going to really just make moves during this lockout. Uh, the other thing that's notable about this movie though is that Steven Soderbergh's second straight movie shot on an iPhone and uh, that opens up a whole other conversation with respect to this movie. Uh, Elijah, I guess first where I'll start is when, you, uh, when, when, when you're watching this, were you, what were you thinking about most I would say because I mean – if you're if, if if someone's going into this movie and doesn't know it's shot on an iPhone, you really might not think about that at all, and you might just really get involved in this story. Were you watching this more from like a technical f- filmmaking perspective, or were you absorbed in the basketball story of it all? Um, a, a little bit of both. I mean, I think I, you know, you and I think a couple other people know that I was essentially live tweeting my <laughs> live tweeting my watching of the movie. Uh, I just took a like a Sunday afternoon and sat down to watch it, and I I, I know it first my response to it was pretty much based on the technical aspects of it. Um, and maybe that's because um, of expectations that had been set by Unsane, uh, by Soderbergh's last film, and, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, an industry-rooted sense of entitlement and superiority <laughs> <laughs> watching the movie. Um, but uh, I-, I will say that those aspects of it did eventually you know, fall by the wayside and whether or not that's a good thing, you know, I guess that's a personal preference. But for me, um, you know, once I started to kind of ignore the technical side of it completely and just focus on what was actually happening, I felt like it opened up a little bit more for me, um, and became a much more interesting watch. So, yeah, I think I'm, uh, I mean, I'm not as much of a, I know you consider yourself a little bit of an editor by trade, but you also know a little bit more about just everything that goes into shooting a movie and some of the challenges that might be posed by shooting on an iPhone. And I guess as I was watching it, I, I, I kind of saw how, well, yeah, obviously you, it's going to be, we might still be a little ways away from being able to film an all out sports movie on an iPhone where you're like doing legitimate shooting of sports scenes that are very intricate and there's only about 15 seconds of basketball in this entire movie. And so I, I kind of, but I kind of respected the fact at the same time that it like looked like a legitimate movie. And if I knew nothing about it going in, I wouldn't have been like, oh, they shot that on a phone, uh, which I might think if I had like, which I, I maybe could have guessed after watching something like Tangerine, which was maybe like the first big movie the last few years to, uh, 
really utilize iPhones almost exclusively. And so I, I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, it feels like a legitimate movie. Uh, and not that Tangerine's not legitimate, but it feels like it could have been shot on anything, at least to someone that's a little more of a novice like me. So I think I did get to focus more on the story. And but at the same time, I think part of what's really interesting, if you've read any interviews with Steven Soderbergh, he's like a big thing that he's made a cause in the last five years since he kind of took a hiatus from directing feature films and did some TV and then came back to it is he's like just kind of sick of like the regular studio system and distribution and all that wants to figure out the ways to make movies like on the cheap his way as little interference as possible. And uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I mean, I, I want you to finish your point, but I, I do definitely have a, I have a, a complaint about that attitude, but I, I don't know. Well, I mean, I, I'd be curious. I, I'm curious to hear it. I'm just saying, I think knowing that, knowing that he's still making this movie with those kind of thoughts in mind makes it a little more interesting. Just when you think about like what the movie's about in the first place, you know, it's largely about a, a guy that decides to kind of take on the system and do his own thing outside of a traditional structure. And that's kind of what Soderbergh is doing at the same time in the making of the film. And I, I, I enjoyed thinking about that, if nothing else, the rest of the plot notwithstanding, which we'll talk about. Right. And I, and I know that one of my reactions to the movie and to the idea of using an iPhone was that it didn't lend anything to the, the film itself. Um, and I felt that it was disingenuous because you talk about Tangerine and yeah, Tangerine is a movie, uh, and Sean Baker was a person who, who, who needed to shoot on an iPhone because there was no other option for him. He didn't have the money or the means or the connections or the network or anything to make a, a, a you know, a, a feature film with the kind of standards that we've come to expect from a Hollywood film. So he had to shoot on an iPhone. Uh, when Soderbergh used the iPhone in Unsane. I felt that it was justified because it, the way that it was done and stylized reflected the themes of the film. And there was an element of this manic, you know, crunchy, bizarro world um, that we were seeing in the inside of the psych ward. Um, and so, you know, I felt that the cinematography choice to use the iPhone reflected that theme and that was good. This film, I know when I was watching it, I said there's no reason thematically to be doing this. It's just... For the hell of it. And I still feel that way about, especially with regards to money, which I want to get to. But I, I will say that maybe I was a little bit wrong about that uh, in terms of the theme, because there's definitely, uh, you know, an aspect of the film that's about uh, amateurism and being an amateur and trying to cover up for your being an amateur with flash and with style um, and so maybe there was some, you know, pluralism between that theme and shooting the movie on an iPhone and then trying to dress it up and hide it and make it look like it wasn't an iPhone. Right. But all, all in all, I felt that it was a pretty disingenuous, uh, you know, choice to, to, to use the iPhone and act like that was some kind of, um, you know, outsider rogue maneuver uh, because the movie was still made for two million dollars. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you, like, and, can, and, can you film this movie? With everything else, all other factors remain the same on regular cameras for two million dollars. Do you think that's completely doable? Yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely. You'd be you'd be you'd be spending two million twenty thousand instead of two million flat. Okay. So I, I mean, it in in the grand scheme of things, and especially for somebody like Steven Soderbergh, who at this point in his career is independently wealthy, 
um, you know, he, he could do that if he wanted to. Well, do you see any value in just him showing like, hey, you can make a movie that looks like this with iPhones just as a no. kind of a message to other filmmakers or no? Uh, no, because it's only impressive to people who haven't been doing it already. And anybody who's been in the, such, the situation of necessity where they've said, I, I, I've, I need to make a film. I have this burning desire to make a film and I have no way to do it. Every single person who's been in that situation has already turned to their iPhones. Um, Okay, sorry, go ahead. And, and, I mean, even more to the point, he, yeah, he was using an iPhone, but he was using an iPhone that had custom-made lenses by Moondog Labs. He was using iPhones that were rigged up and mounted to expensive expensive gimbals and uh, fluid head tripods and things that cost a lot more money than, you know, just an iPhone. So, you know, there was a lot more that went into this movie's look than just him well, shooting that, on an iPhone. Well, that was the next thing I was going to ask you. Is there something else he could have done with the look or were there different angles or shots that you were hoping to see that would have justified the use of the iPhone in the first place? Yeah. I mean, I would have said go ham, like actually make it look like an iPhone. Um, there's, there's, there was one particular scene that actually really bothered me, which was when they do the they, – they show – it's when I don't want to jump too much ahead in the plot for the people who are listening and haven't seen it or don't remember the plot. But there's this there's a scene where uh, where Eric Scott, the basketball player, is set up to go to this um, local like charity basketball event in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns into this you know publicity stunt where the other basketball player turns up uh, his kind of like rival on the team. Right. Uh, Jamer, I think is Jamero, I think is his name. Yes. Um, he turns up and it becomes this sort of stunt and, and there's people filming it on their phones. And later on, we see the footage from their phones, but we see it uh, like on somebody's phone screen, like in somebody's hand, like from the perspective of the camera. We never actually see it. What, that would have been a great time to insert more iPhone footage and not feel the need to dress it up. Right. It's footage from somebody's phone. Why not just show them taking the footage on their phone if the whole idea is to show how, you know, this connection between... Well, for the purposes of the plot, I guess in the moment that they, they didn't want to show what was actually happening. They wanted to, like, leave it as more of a mystery because that was part of the strategy of Ray. Uh, but but I see what you're saying. Like, even if you do it in a small dose, that's one where you can utilize a more uh, uh, traditional-looking iPhone look if you're what it's like to film a basketball game on a... Uh, even for 15 seconds. Exactly. Exactly. It could have just been cutaways. It could have been anything. Um, I I just feel like the movie was trying to, like there was a point made about, Oh, look at how cheaply we're doing this for and how, uh, and, and how cool we are for breaking away from the system and using something like an iPhone and they didn't lean into it at all. They they did everything in their power. Well, I don't even know why I'm saying they because it's just Steven Soderbergh. Steven Soderbergh did everything in his power to make it not apparent that it was shot on an iPhone, which you <laughs> yeah. know I don't think that that really doesn't send the right message to people who are who are in a position where they have to shoot things on their iPhone. Yeah, there were a few shots where I could be like, oh, I see w- what they did with the phone here. Like even in like the very first scene when they're eating lunch. And there's a few things where it looks like they might have just like propped the phone off on the table sitting on top of the menu to look at their faces. And I was like, yeah, I can I can visualize exactly what this looked like as they shot it. But at the same time, I think any other movie could have gotten this shot with a regular camera. And I mean, I'd heard Soderbergh doing some interviews where he's like, yeah, I can do anything with these things. I can tape it to the ceiling. It's like, 
Yeah, but you didn't do that in this movie. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, I it would have been interesting to see that utilized uh, certainly a little more, but at the same time, I I, I do think it's it, it, a lot of these things we just spent the last five minutes discussing might not even really be of that much concern to someone that just saw it pop up on Netflix and didn't know anything about it. So right. I, I, and, and I don't know what that what the importance of that is, but if, if if it just works for them as a movie on the surface, and that's something too, I guess. Yeah, and that that's why I said to me it was just a a rock star, you know, uh, playing with a, playing the guitar with one hand tied behind his back just to show he could do it. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, which uh, you know, as a filmmaker, it doesn't impress me. Sure. Um, and maybe that's you know, maybe that's different for a general audience. And I I won't assume to I won't presume to say what you know is a what other people would like. Well, so. and despite your misgivings about all the credits Soderbergh might be getting for doing the shooting the movie that way, I, I know you still gave the movie fairly decent marks overall when I uh, at least saw how you rated it on Letterboxd. I didn't read your review because I don't like reading people's reviews before I do a podcast with them. But uh, what about the movie did work for you, though? Well, like I said at the beginning, I mean, once I started ignoring the, you know, the visual and, and technical aspects of the film and it really just focused on what was being said, um, I think that's when it came to life for me. When I, um, Soderbergh, Soderbergh does a really good job uh, with, with interactions, with people talking. He's, it, you know, it's a very – there's a lot of these guys from the 90s like Sorkin and all – you know, these guys who came up at the same time, Tarantino, who just have a way with dialogue – you know, all of their dialogue is, is very snappy and very, uh, you know, filled with double meaning. And, yeah, props and, to know. Terrell Evan McCraney. He, this, you could have told me this was written by Sorkin and I wouldn't have known the difference, which isn't always right. a great thing, I guess. But, I mean, it, it shows that he can uh, pull off a script that's way different from something like Moonlight. Exactly, yeah. Um, it had that – I think I, – I, I'm not even sure if I actually ended up writing the letterbox review for it, but in my mind, I was like um, – uh, basically, I think in my mind, what I was thinking is like, this is, is, is Jerry Maguire. If it was just like a hundred thousand variations of show me the money, that's all, <laughs> um, which is not a bad thing because I thought the most obnoxious part of Jerry Maguire was the romance and all that stuff. I really wish Jerry Maguire was just about, <laughs> was just about sports, uh, sports management. True. Yeah. And so. I mean, I think the thing that most impressed me about this was, I mean, I don't, I haven't read too much about the production of it. I know they started – I know the genesis of this happened when they were shooting Moonlight, and I think Andre Holland started like talking to Terrell Evan McCraney about this. Andre Holland had the pre-existing Soderbergh relationship from uh, working on The Nick, and I think it, it just kind of came together. But uh, basically like they started thinking about this thing like uh, to at least around 2014, 2015-ish, and uh, it feels like so timely right now. Not for basketball specifically – because they actually are in a very relatively harmonious time with regards to their labor relations. They uh, signed a new deal a handful of years ago, and then the next TV deal was so much money that they're like, "All right, let's not screw this up." But I don't know how much I know. You're, I don't know how big you are in the baseball. I know you're a basketball and football guy, but baseball there's something really interesting going on right now where like pretty much like two thirds of the best free agents still aren't signed, and spring training's opening up in like a week. Right. And, and I, I know that. Yeah. I mean, I know I certainly know about Manny Machado and I know about all those guys. And Bryce and Harper. Bryce. Right. And Bryce Harper. I know that there's the, you know, the question of because these guys have been have been offered hundred million, you know, or more dollar contracts. Um, well, they should. Be, but, the thing is, they should be offered like three hundred million dollar contracts and they're getting offered like two hundred and one hundred and seventy five million dollar contracts because the owners are just kind of like group joining together to kind of suppress the player's salaries. Right. 
Right. I mean, it's, uh, I know that it's, it's kind of an interesting position to be in as, as, you know, not necessarily an outsider, but definitely not an insider either. I mean, I'm not a sports agent. I don't, (laughs) I don't presume to know anything about that world, but to recognize, you know, maybe what I'm trying to say is the, the thing that I felt that this film did best was actually vocalizing the players' perspectives. And yeah, they may have done it literally in a few instances where, you know, they they actually have, you know, there was documentary segments of real basketball players just discussing what it's like being a young guy, yeah. Or being a young player in the in the NBA, but I I don't think a lot of sports movies really actually approach it from the player's perspective. Right. Um, One interesting thing that I was really mad I didn't think about on my own because I'm very, very fond of this ridiculous movie. Uh, But until I was reading an article on The Ringer earlier, and it brought up the the great 2000 classic The Replacements. And I don't know if you ever watched (laughs) The Replacements, but it's it's a a Gene Hackman, Keanu Reeves vehicle where the – it also has – Oh, God damn it. I'm going to forget who plays the owner in that movie, but uh, I'm going to look that up while I, while I vamp. But basically in that movie, there is a uh, – the players are go on strike the, the, themselves, and the, uh, the after the play, after the players go on strike, they end up oh, – oh, Jack Warden plays the owner. But the, the, the players go on strike, and replacement players are brought in because the owner is like, fine, we don't need you. We're going to bring in other players. And the, one of the other players, Eddie Martell is the quarterback uh, who's that who went on strike, and uh, Shane Falco, played by Keanu Reeves, is kind of our hero. It's like, oh, yeah, these ragtag players can just do what the players can. These pros are being greedy, asking for more money. And that's like the, the closest analog I can kind of think about to this film, and it's been almost 20 years since it came out. And this movie kind of flips that dynamic on its head, and it's actually like showing the Think, making the players out to be the sympathetic characters, which, I mean, and the billionaires out to be like the greedy ones that are just trying to get the better of them for no good reason when they already have plenty of money. So I, I just thought it was kind of funny that you kind of made that point that it's the first one to really come in with this perspective, and it just kind of shows how the times are changed in a way. Yeah, and I think I, I think you're right, I think, and I think that's kind of what this movie is about, and I think it's it's something that's been vocalized in, to some degree in other movies, you know, you look at movies like, um, uh, you know, like the uh, one that specifically comes to mind would be Friday Night Lights, which is about, you know, the struggles of being an athlete and about, um, you know, how that life can, you know, how it how it can change so quickly. And that, um, you know, that there's uh, a kind of. At least Friday Night Lights approached it from there's this sort of, you know, brotherhood of 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 all athletes, you know, of football players and coaches and team managers and blah, 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 blah. And I think that's kind of always been the perspective on sports is that everybody in sports understands each other and really they're all looking out for each other. Um, and yeah, so up up until now, I, the replacements is the only film I can think of that even hints at the notion that that um, you know athletes are not necessarily viewed uh, by the rest of even by the rest of uh, the you know the the management and, and the administration of their own sport. They're not viewed as being um, a useful or important thing beyond just being assets. 
Yeah, um, well, and that's also part of the thing. When, whenever there is a lockout, like there is, there kind of was in the NBA or something like that. It's just the the, the owners know that like they're the ones that they have that general. Way, the owners have that generational wealth where they can think about things in decades, whereas the players can think about it in terms of years or even months because who knows what their background is and what their obligations are, and they have to give a chunk to the, the government. They have to give a chunk to their agent. They have other people to take care of, and it's just there's that pressure that they can put on labor. And uh, this movie really gets at that from the very beginning and uh you see the kyle mclaughlin owner character at one point saying you know i'm just going to go to the australia for the weekend i don't really have to worry about it and uh that, that that's just kind of how it is and they they can look they can look down upon the labor which they do rely on and i think the movie just kind of questions uh and it's important that it's a basketball movie because uh the movie just kind of questions like how much do the players need that infrastructure and I, and I think that's the most important thing it does. I mean, at the same time, it, 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 in some more subtle ways, it, it, it is a movie about race because both in – at least especially in football and basketball, you know, these are white owners and uh, with largely African-American labor forces. And uh, it, it puts them in that position where they're at the mercy of these rich white guys. And uh, at a certain point, it's like, hey, is there a way in which they could take back the power? And it's a very interesting question to wrestle with in the in the context of this sport in a situation like this because uh, wh- where this plot of this movie goes could really only happen in basketball and I think we're gonna I think there might actually be a good jumping off point to talk about a spoiler section but uh, before we even do that do you have any other thoughts just in general about that about the, the just those general themes that Terrell Alvin McCraney wanted to address in this script? Yeah, I mean, I I, I think you nailed it. I do think you know there is. I don't want to say heavy-handed because I think it's it's very much about uh, well we'll talk I guess we'll talk about the Bible element you know later on right. um, but uh, to me there's there's something um, almost pastoral about that notion um, it's it sort of goes beyond the sport which I really liked the idea um, of of you know the of kind of you know uh, African Americans in this case minority groups that are that have been uh, historically utilized as workforces that continue to be utilized as workforces um, to recognize their power. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, that's something that's been a theme in a couple of movies this in this past 12 month period. I think Sorry to Bother You touches on it in a, in a much more, uh, you know, overt and, and bludgeoning way. Yeah, I was gonna say, this is the second pro labor movie we've talked about on this podcast. <laughs> right. Exactly. I think there's a trend. <laughs> But no, I, I mean, I really liked it. I loved, I loved the very, very unsubtle jab at uh, Donald Sterling, uh-huh. um, at who I guess for those listeners who are not familiar with the history, Donald Sterling was the uh, owner of the L.A. Clippers, who was ousted by the NBA in like in 2014 or so, right? Yes. Um, for uh, making some really, really, really terrible racially... He's uh, very uh, mad at his girlfriend for inviting Magic Johnson to a game because he's black. Because he's black, right. And uh, he was caught on a hot mic and was was absolutely evaporated. So uh, there was a little reference to that in the movie where I think he straight up... One of the characters straight up says, like, you know, you can... Uh, like players can do something stupid and they're out of the league in five minutes. An owner can say, you know, horrible racist things. And mm-hmm. there's even a question about whether or not he should still be 
an owner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, I, I want to jump off into spoiler territory because this movie certainly uh, does take a twist, and I feel like we gave everyone a decent amount to think about. And um, I think Elijah and I def- definitely both recommend this movie. It's easy to go watch, obviously, because it's on Netflix. So definitely check it out and then come back and listen to the rest of our conversation. But um, yeah, Elijah, I want to talk about where this movie goes because it's really interesting just how the, how the script works. I actually have a few issues with it in a few parts where I think it almost tries to be too subtle and uh maybe doesn't explain things enough but one of the things i really do think it, it does well is that uh ray andre holland's character i mean he ends up you end up figuring out that he has a plan right from the get-go and i didn't really feel cheated by not knowing that plan uh and the way they revealed it and i thought that was a pretty impressive uh trick that uh mccraney pulled off yeah um you know you he's definitely uh, one thing that mccraney has has really captured with this movie is having characters that can uh, that can show dynamism in terms of, you know, being both immensely cool and collected under pressure and also appearing to be very not collected under pressure. Um, you know, when we when we're first introduced to Ray in the first scene of the movie, I mean, the guy, he's he's so freaking cool. Like he's <laughs> just, you know, he's just this slick, you know, smooth, quick talking guy. But then later in the film, when he has to essentially beg Eric Scott to, like, stay with him with the Netflix deal and, you know, that whole – or uh, Hulu deal or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's the joke is nobody really knows what deal it's with. But the, yeah. the TV show deal, mm-hmm. um, it's that, that level of dynamism where it's like, you know, like, that's really cool to see both sides of a character because a lot of movies just don't do that. Yeah, and, and, and then you see a whole other side of him when he – I mean it, it is a great performance that Andre Allen gives. I mean he has, he has to hit the different notes where he's giving the speech to the kids or he's talking to Zazie Beats about uh, what happened with his uh, cousin. And, uh, and that, I mean they really just hint at that, but I think it's just kind of trying to tell you that why this guy has perspective. He does based on uh, just where, where he's seen, seen things go bad for other athletes he's represented. And uh, I think it, it, the movie's only 90 minutes, and it, and it really gives you a, a really full picture of this guy while still having plenty of other scenes that don't even involve him. And I don't know. I, I guess I'd say that it's a really cool plan, and I, I didn't delve too much into it in the first section. But, I mean, again, this is the one sport where you could, in theory, do something like this, where the players pick up their ball and go to another court, for lack of a better term. You know, uh, I think mm-hmm. there's too there's too much other stuff that you need in other mo- in other in in other sports, whether it be the the equipment or the facilities. Like you can never do this in hockey. Obviously, you need the you need the you need the facility that has the ice. In uh, baseball, I think it's kind of the same thing. Um, uh, I, th- I still think you need the stadiums even more than you do in basketball. In basketball, in theory, there, there's enough star power. There's They have the most recognizable names and faces out of all the sports. You could probably make a decent chunk of change if you just had street ball and the NBA didn't exist. You might not have the same amount of money that the NBA did. I mean, it would obviously... I mean, I, I don't think it's realistic that something like that would happen anytime soon, given how much money the NBA makes. But just from a logistical standpoint, it's the one kind of game where it could happen. It was kind of fun to see it put into practice at least in this movie yeah um and I, i'm gonna i want to I, I i'm gonna start with a point that may seem superfluous but i am going to link it back to this yeah and this is something that somebody said online and i completely loved and agreed with it um which was that um steven soderbergh's films almost all of his films are heist films in some way or another um 
And this movie is really no different. Um, and, and just like sports are never just sports. And, you know, illness is never just illness. Vampires are never just vampires. You know, where everything has a symbolic meaning. In Soderbergh's films, I feel like the heist is always about stealing something back that's more than just a physical item or more than just, uh, you know, a, 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 a deed or a service. It's stealing back something about yourself. Um, and so what I really liked about this movie was that notion of that, that he, you know, that Andre Holland orchestrates this, basically he orchestrates the end of the lockout. Yeah. Well, in the built and that it, what you're talking about is part of what the Bill Duke character talks a lot about too. He plays the old coach that is just kind of omnipresent throughout the movie, but he's saying like, look, these, these rich white dudes built a game upon our game. They, they, they took it and turned it into something else. Exactly. And so maybe that's an instance where, like you said, it's a little bit on, you know, a little bit on the nose, but maybe, you know, it could have been a little bit better um, elucidated. You know, there could have been a little bit more excitement to that element. But to me, I thought that was such an interesting idea of like, you know, seizing the means of taking back the sport, um, you know, to to where it began to being, you know, um, streetball to just being guys playing this, you know, game, uh, not because they had to, but because they wanted to, and because it was something deeply personal to them. Right. And that element of this film where Andre Holland, you know, he, he, for Eric Scott and this other guy, they sort of unwittingly become, they unwittingly steal back the sport for themselves by, yeah. you know, by playing an old school game, um, of just them. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know that, that gets to a little bit of where my issues were. One, uh, first the scene where, uh, where Ray goes to meet, uh, uh, what's his name's mom, where he, go, where he goes to meet Jamero, Jamero's mom. It's an incredible scene. Uh, the way she puts him on his heels oh, yeah. and, uh, she acts, I mean, she just, it's as well acted and she, it's just funny how she heard his kind of blow Andre Holland away. Uh, but at the same time, I don't know if it's ever quite I maybe some I get that it might not be that important to some people but I, I was kind of a little bothered I'm like why do these two teammates hate each other so much you know it's like are they just arguing about who's better and one person talks shit on Twitter but like I need a little more context for why like two guys that are like teammates would have like that big of an issue with each other to, to spur the whole thing on like it didn't stop me from appreciating the scene with his mom and Andre Holland but I was still like thinking about that I'm like I still don't get like why these guys are beefing so hard yeah, and I mean, I think that's definitely that's. I would say that that's more of a technical fault of the movie because it is mentioned, but that's when I think it gets to the, the maybe that the film there were some cases where it was overwritten and over edited, where we're so caught up in how slick and fast paced everything is going that it, it like you start to miss details. Well, they, that, like, that might be what a couple of my other problems were too. Then to hear you put it that way, because it was more the issues I had, what I thought were with the script and maybe what I'm hearing are, I could have just missed it because of the way the movie moved, but it was more the mechanics of how the lockout was working and different rules that they had with respect to just the, the legalities at play. One being the right after the aftermath of the charity event. And it's all about, well, are we like infringing on the league's trademark? And they're like, did you plan it? Did you not plan it? You don't want it. And someone recites the whole entire copyright disclaimer you get at the beginning of games. <laughs> and it's like, uh, we, we know, but then all of a sudden in the next scene, they're like, oh yeah, but now we're going to start planning events. It's like, wait, why, why are you guys worried about this in the first place? I mean, 
because I, I, I mean, I took a sports law. I'm a sports fan. I took a sports law class in law school. I know a little bit about CBAs because I've just been reading stories about this stuff. And I kind of knew off the bat, like, I just kind of knew in general, like, this thing could, in theory, happen. Pe- guys could put on their own games, and it wouldn't be the end of the world. But they try and make it seem like it's a bad thing. But then at the next the next scene, uh, uh, Ray's giving the press conference, and it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to look into putting on these different events. And it's like, wait, I thought everyone just thought this was a big problem. And I, I get the idea is that you can't make it seem like it's NBA-sanctioned. But I, there wasn't anything that on the surface that was NBA-sanctioned about the charity event aside from the fact that it involved two NBA players. And I don't really know. It, it didn't really grasp why all those people were so worried in that first conversation. Right. I think it's more. it was more of a question of did Andre Holland organize it, which I think is what they were asking. And I think that's why that seems kind of confusing because he's trying to play it off like he didn't really. But then he, or, because, then he, then he proceeds to organize a bunch of stuff right after that. Well, but the stuff that he's organizing is not – organized ball games they are you know he's trying to do movie deals or you know whatever and he's working out all these other things the the only question was was that one ball game uh an, an event organized by an agent well he goes on would, to organize the streaming deals for other ball games and maybe the idea is that other players are going to take it upon themselves and he's just trying to get a piece of the action exactly uh, i yeah. guess and, and I, he's facilitating it by making it big and making you know he's fine he found yeah. a loophole yeah i look i agree um it, it's it's a it's a whole it didn't really bother me though because i just I don't you know, know what I, I watched that scene like four times when they were just in the in the office talking with um, the NBA player executive, uh, head of the players union, played by Sonia Son, and the yeah. Bill Duke character and Zazie Beats, and they were all in there. I was like, I don't understand what they're so worried about, given that they all of a sudden are about to go start pulling off all these other games. On top of that, uh, at the end where you start get closer to finding out Andre Holland's ultimate goal, I did did you understand why he needed to be he needed to have uh, Eric fire him? Um, but just transfer, no, transfer, uh, transfer within the same company. Like, yeah, I just, I just need to go to someone else at my agency. I need Zazzy Beats to help facilitate that. But I, I felt like that was something that like they were expecting us to pick up on what that was, and they just didn't want to explain it. But I thought, no, that needed to be explained because it, it kind of passed off as like a key uh, plot point in order to get to where they need to be. But I, I don't think it's very, I don't think it's at all apparent why. I think it's maybe because he he if in order to keep doing what he's doing, Eric Scott couldn't continue to be his client. Otherwise, that would breach some sort of contractual, you know, like that that would become, you know, a, a breach of contract with the with the NBA. But he can't. But but his whole goal was to like get it to go back to business as usual, and not actually do any of that other stuff. He just wanted to give the appearance of that stuff happening. But as we know, it was his ultimate goal just to kind of bring the NBA back. And put it well, back to I, things as normal. I don't think that was. I, I think that I think that is the smokescreen. The smokescreen for the audience is that he's trying to orchestrate the end of his lockout so that he can go back to having everything normal. But I think the greater message of the movie is where that comes into play. For him, it's not. It's it's also for him. It's about stealing the sport back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the idea at the end. Well, it's more, it's more him, sh- it's him showing that they could steal the sport back just to show the leverage that they can't exert on the owners. Well, yeah. And I mean, I, th- well, I think it's very literal. I mean, he goes, he literally goes to Zachary Quinto at the end of the film and basically says to him, like, you know, I may not have your job today, but I'm probably going to have your job tomorrow. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, he, he is, he's showing that, you know, that timidness and that, you know, that trepidation and all of that, that, uh, you know, yeah. frankly, the white ownership is, 
you know, is problematic. Yeah, they're, they're, uh, they're just – and overall, I still really like the movie because I like this larger message that it does get across that we've been talking about. I just thought there were a few of those plot mechanics that it just didn't really – explain as clearly as it could have on top of that it's the zazzy beats thing which uh, i love her as an actress i think she gives a good performance here but i do not love the way that character is utilized i, th- yeah. I thought there's, there's no reason she needs to uh have a sexual relationship with uh with eric it, it, she could have just been doing a good job and uh, uh, and do everything that job entails stopping short of that and she says no i wanted to do it i didn't feel pressure to do it fine but i mean i, I just didn't really think that was necessary because they're trying to position her as someone that is in theory very talented and can uh work her way up to uh a spot in the in the, in the players union but at the same time it's like i don't want to i i just want to see her just being really badass at her job as opposed to just like sleeping her way into being really close to the player yeah look if the movie had been 120 minutes i feel like her character would have been better i, yeah. I think this is the kind of movie that really could have benefited from maybe not being as breezy as it was um, which is yeah and i mean i enjoy when a movie can be really quick and in and out like that and i so i guess i was giving a credit for that at the same time but i think that character needed more time because it, that, that goes along with the whole thing with uh eric firing ray she's instrumental in that but it's okay for her to do it when she's counseling uh people from the league office because that's where she wants to be anyway and they were like really worried about like the i guess the optics of someone that works for their company like getting an athlete to fire an agent because then there's a risk he's just not going to hire someone else from the company, but he does. But the thing is, it would have been okay because she wasn't working for the company. She was working for the league. I mean, her she she really is an important plot piece that I just, again, I guess maybe if this movie's 20 minutes longer, a lot of this stuff maybe just gets fleshed out more. I agree. I yeah. agree. All right. Uh, do you have any other final thoughts? How about how about the end? I mean, you, we mentioned it with the Bible, with the Doctor Harry Edwards thing, where all of a sudden it turns out that Bible they've been talking about is Harry Edwards, uh, the revolt to the black athlete, and it, it does kind of bring things full circle. Uh, were you was that part of what you were saying? Where things were a little on the nose, or did you kind of enjoy that? Yeah, I mean, I I enjoyed it. Um, I've not read the book. Um, I don't really know the, the background to it. I could see. That the intention there might be to have people watch it and be like, oh, I wonder, you know, if you don't already know what it is or have some conception of what it is to go and say, well, mate, now I should go and look it up. Uh, Now I should go check it out or now I should just understand this concept. But I liked it. I mean, I like the I, I, you know, I think it wraps itself up nicely. Um, And I I mean, I'm not definitely not going to complain about Richie Havens, more, more Richie Havens music ever. That being the you know the song you know played at the beginning and the end, Richie Havens. Um, for me, I I liked it. It's a it's a movie that I would say is more necessary than it is uh, you know standing on its own legs, and I would say that it doesn't really fulfill all that it could have. Um, but for a movie that was made for two million dollars, uh, you know, that was made that was made for, you know, pocket change in a bag of Skittles by <laughs> Steven Soderbergh and Terrell Alvin McCraney. Um, it's a very good film. Uh, yeah, you know, no, I enjoy it too. I, again, there are just um, a few of these story things I wish I'd done differently, but at the same time, I, I while and, and while I hear a lot of what Elijah talked about at the beginning about the about the iPhone, I still I, I do I do like the idea of like of movies like this being possible with that kind of equipment and and yes Soderbergh is more of an insider but it is still kind of funny that just the his whole stige in doing this does have some parallels to this movie whether that's accidental or not I I I enjoy thinking about that 
and thinking about this, the larger story that this movie is trying to tell about just what, what these athletes can really do if they want to um, use their leverage in certain ways. And it's, it's, it feels very timely based on what's going on in pro sports today, and I think that's really impressive given that this was written over the course of a couple of years, but not in the last year. And it seems like these owners in real life are starting to like kind of take their own, make their own kind of power play in various sports to try and suppress wages. And uh, it makes this movie feel kind of essential in a way, even if it's maybe not one of Steven Soderbergh's five best movies. But, I agree. All right, Elijah, uh, before we get out of here, uh, do you have anything you want to plug? Oh, man, a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you gotta be, uh, wow. be, a, be a company man. Do your Turner thing. It's basketball. Yeah. You're going to uh, plug, got... plug, plug, plug what's going on next Tuesday night at 8 o'clock on TNT. <laughs> What's going on? Next I don't know. I'm just guessing there's a basketball game. Uh, I was just joking. Well, All-Star Week. I mean, yeah, there's oh, always right. basketball. Yeah. All-Star Weekend is this upcoming weekend. Uh, we'll be having coverage of that, NBA TV, NBA on TNT. Uh, we're going to have the All-Star game. We're going to have all the All-Star trappings. I think I think like 85% of my floor is leaving to Charlotte tomorrow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to be pretty lonely. Uh, but Good timing. I'm going to try and post this on Friday morning. So that's very good synergy on our part. Yeah, um, NBA All-Star, and I mean, even after that, we got the rest of the season, and uh, sports coverage never ends on NBA, or on uh, on TNT at this point, really. We got Champions League coming up, uh, if you're into football, you know, soccer, if that's your thing. Uh, we got E-League for eSports, um, and all of those things are right around, right down the bend uh, on uh, TNT, so... All right. Look for it. All right, sounds good. And as usual, I'm on Twitter at Josh Chernovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-I. Same thing on Letterboxd. Coming up next, though, on the podcast, we're going to have, I guess, uh, I think maybe an episode on either Lego Movie 2 or both Alita Battle Angel and Happy Death Day to you. And then we're going to have this big awards podcast that I've been working on for a couple weeks. One where all my most frequent guests give their top tens. Another where they all talk about uh, the different awards that they're excited about for awards season, plus a couple other fake awards as well. So stay tuned for all that. We'll see you next time.